0: Ken Patera takes matters in his own hands and he does what he has to do to win. I'll bet you that's something he learned in jail. All right now. This man paid his debt to society. That's one thing I don't know about. Bruno might though. Bruno, you ever spend a night with slammer, Bruno? All right, 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 come come on, let's change the subject. All right, fine.
1: From Television City in Hollywood.
0: All right, you guys, you know this is for fun, so take it easy and give him a good show.
2: Now stay tuned
0: for professional wrestling live
2: from the Springfield Grappolarium. Tonight, a Texas death match. Dr. Hillbilly versus the Iron Yuppie. One man will actually be unmasked and killed in the ring.
0: I hope they kill that Iron Yuppie. Think she's so big. Discretionary viewer participation is advised for the following professional wrestling exhibition. Greetings from Allentown is taped in front of a live studio audience.
3: Welcome to episode 221 of Greetings from Allentown. I am your host, Peter Winson, and I certainly hope that I remember how to do this. Yes, this podcast, Greetings from Allentown, that I haven't done for several weeks now. I hope I remember how to do the format, because one of my issues, other than the fact that I definitely needed a little bit of a break from this show... Also, I had a mental block on how exactly I put the show together. I, I don't know how that occurs. I compare it to that time when Chuck Knobloch of the Yankees couldn't throw to first base correctly. And he airmailed the throw once and hit Keith Olbermann's mother in the head. Yes, that's an actual thing that occurred. You can go ahead and look it up. But today I'm going to be looking at WWF superstars of wrestling. From August twenty second, 1987. I don't put Superstars of Wrestling on the like name of the show when it like goes into iTunes because it just takes up extra space anyway. And I like to have that space to kind of do a parenthetical of what was on this show. And this one, for an August show, is surprisingly loaded with story. I mean, it's Paul Orndorff-centric in a certain way. Although there's a lot of other stuff, because I had started preparing to do this show when Paul Orndorff passed away, which was like a month and a half ago. Now, of course, it's not the Hulk Hogan turn from the middle of 86, because I was pushing that back, kind of want to maybe save that for like a round number episode, like 250 or something like that. I mean, I'm looking at my notes here, and, and they're so dated, like I had to go back and watch... The first part of the show again, because it had been seven weeks since I actually put pen to paper and I had to remember what the hell I was talking about, and a lot has occurred in the time that I've last done this show that as I said, I needed a break from this for a variety of different reasons, and those of you out here out there who know me who talk to me regularly, I mean, you know who you are. And I thank you for reaching out to me during these last few weeks because, you know, it's, it's been a little bit difficult, and I don't want to go totally into everything because, you know, there, there's, there's a lot to get to, not, not just the, the actual wrestling show itself, and, but, you know, what I've been up to more recently. I was at SummerSlam in Las Vegas and then was there for a few days before and after, which I feel is of some interest. You know, I've not been to Las Vegas since I've been doing a podcast, so I feel like my information, <laughs> you know, just throwing it out there, give you ideas of things to do when you go to Las Vegas. But before I get into all that, let me get in my plugs. Let me see if I remember how to do this. You can email the show, greenismallentown, at gmail.com, facebook.com, slash blah, 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 and on the Bird app, Twitter, at Pod, that is at Pod, I've considered deleting the Bird app from my phone and I'm very close to doing it today as I record this but decided against it and I don't know it's just a split I'm trying to stay informed with the news but also you know not read too much of it you know to anger up the blood as it were but you may have noticed that I've been continuing to do GFA live with my good pal Keithy on the weekend it's probably about five or six of them since the Last Greetings from Allentown. In this past week, episode 69, which I think was a very nice episode that we put together on WWF Superstars from July 20th, 1991. We've been doing a lot of 91 shows, feeling nostalgic for that year. Because I realize there's 30 years since then. 30 years! <laughs> it's the amount of time that Vinny, since Vinny had gotten made in Goodfellas. He got made in 1949, apparently. But, alright. So I, I promised... You know, a little little bit of Las Vegas because I went out there with a group. Now, I don't know how the hell Facebook works. If, if I was tagged in photos out there and if it shows up on my timeline. So if you saw it on Facebook, you may, you know, you may have seen pictures of me there for, for those of you who know what I look like. It doesn't really matter. But I went out a day ahead of most of the group. And then I stayed like a day and a half later than the rest of the group. Because, I don't know, when I go to Las Vegas, I feel like there's a lot of business for me to accomplish. Starting with the fact, you know, I, I lived there for a very brief period, like eight or nine months back in 03 at 04. And sure enough, the last thing that I did before I left was I went back to the old neighborhood, which was pretty unrecognizable because it most of it had not been developed in 04. And now it's just been built up and it's total like... You know, strip malls and every fast food chain you can think of. But let me rewind to Thursday where, you know, I I had to kind of sneak away from work in order to catch the proper flight that I wanted. Because I had to leave my house at like 3 in the afternoon. And so, you know, cutting it a little short. So I brought my work laptop with me. And I figured, oh, well, this is okay because... JetBlue has been sending me all these notifications of oh we have fly-fi on our flights it's gonna be great you can you can work on the plane or whatever so i had all these grandiose plans to finish up some work no 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 naturally the wi-fi did not work on the plane i would have actually paid for it in this case like i i know on other airlines you can pay for wi-fi access for your flight like fourteen dollars or whatever the hell to charge i would have paid it in this case But, oh, no, no, we have it free, and of course it doesn't work. They rebooted the TVs like three different times, so I just settled for watching the Patriots-Eagles preseason game as the Patriots were on their Super Bowl revenge tour beating the Eagles and the Giants in the preseason, but that's neither here nor there. This is after the flight left late because they had to find three people to get bumped. And in the immortal words of the American Dream, Dusty Rhodes.
0: Remember, this is only a bump in the American Dream. I never took no bump. I was too good.
3: I know Dusty means something else, but I mean getting bumped from the airplane because of the policy of overbooking or whatever the hell it is, where they needed to find three people and they started at $400 in JetBlue credit and they got one person, then they bumped it to 600 got another, and then 800 and got another. Now, I wondered how much it would take for me to even start to consider it, and I figured between $2,500 and $3,000, in which case other people would have gone ahead of me. I booked this flight for a reason, because I didn't want to get into Las Vegas at 1130 at night, because you have to take the cockamamie shuttle to the rental car center, which is its own story, because here in America, in the year 2021, when you rent a car from a company it's not necessarily going to be from that company, and in fact, it sends you through a complete mind f uh, like a maze here. So I go to the thrifty counter there, and there's a big sign: "Oh, we are closed right now. Please go to the dollar counter," which luckily was right next door. I proceed over. There's no line there. Every you know, I have to go through the whole song and dance with the guy. Oh, do you want to prepay to get your car filled with gas? Which, by the way. It's like four fifty for gas at certain stations out there, but it's mostly in like the high threes. And I turned that down, turned down the insurance. I rented a midsize SUV just in case I wanted, you know, had to drive off road for any reason because, you know, I like to go to the parks, as I'll establish in a second. And like, oh, you'll be getting your car from the Hertz lot. So I have literally a thrifty like rental car agreement given to me by the dollar guy, and I have to proceed over to Hertz to pick up my car which was a Jeep Compass, and I have to admit, I was not particularly crazy about that car. Anytime you get a rental car, and when you start it up, it it didn't happen when I was in the lot, but the next day, when I went to drive up the Valley of Fire, State Park, it said, oil change needed. It's like, oh yeah, this is just what you want, to be stranded in the desert when it's 105 degrees, and because the engine seized up on the rental car, because they didn't bother to change the oil, because they've gone so cheap with things they like sold off all their inventory and that's why it's so expensive to rent a damn car these days so we go into friday people started to arrive in so i drove up to valley of fire because nobody really wanted to ride from the airport i don't i think nobody wanted to get in a car with me because they just assumed that i was you know blasted all the time that's not necessarily true i drove 613 miles during this which I'll, i'll establish in a second is valley of fire which I went to again on my last day to kill some time because, you know, I just can't sit there and gamble for six consecutive hours. Not like, not like Keithy. I, <laughs> Valley of Fire is one of the most amazing places on earth. It's about you know, 45 minutes to an hour north of Las Vegas. It's a completely different park. The way the sun hits the rocks at sunrise and sunset. So I recommend that to, to anybody. Okay. It's probably best if you don't go when it's 105 degrees, like I did on the Tuesday, but, I, I don't know. I, lo- I love Red Rocks and just you know climbing around, looking at them, natural arches, all that stuff. But Friday, I go back to Vegas. The, the group has arrived. We all meet up at the MGM. It's a great time. Perhaps I was a little over-served that night playing beer pong at the O'Shea's, the little O'Shea's casino inside the Link, which used to be the Imperial Palace. Won a beer pong game in which I celebrated like I won the World Series, even though I only hit two out of the ten cups for my side. But anyway, I hit the winning shot. But then, you know, sometimes things happen in Las Vegas that that are out of your control. Some of them are more, you know, harmful, where, like, you take the card of the stripper and <laughs> of the guy, the guys with the stripper's names or a phone number on there, like, and you call that and you bring them up to your room. Now, I've never done that, but I've heard stories, and I had to disavow somebody's notion within our group that maybe you shouldn't do that because I've heard things, you know, in my, in my time in Las Vegas. Well, I made a stupid on my own where I got back to the room, and I had not eaten much because another issue is a lot of food places are closed or closed earlier or, or what have you, so I decided to order a pizza by app at 2.05 in the morning. And then proceeded to uh, text the app, like, I want to increase the tip to $15. To okay. I got, like, a pizza and a sub, which is very ambitious. But I did have a fridge in the room. So suffice it to say, I fell asleep. I passed out. Uh, the guy arrived at, like, 3 in the morning. So I guess the concierge, the valets, or whoever uh, helped themselves to a nice little pizza. I woke up wearing my clothes the next day, and I was very hungover which I had not been in quite some time, and I was very uncomfortable. The day of the SummerSlam, of which our our group was in a luxury box, which is very, very nice. I mean, when you think of a luxury box, oh, free food? It's just chicken fingers and hot dogs, but I was so grateful to have food in my stomach and access to Raiders-branded smart water, which, I don't know if you've followed the Raiders over the last 20 years, it hasn't exactly been a lot of smart moments, Besides, in my lifetime, I think they've moved three times. So, who 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 knows? But as for the show itself, I mean, this is a wrestling podcast after all. I enjoyed it well enough. There are certain aspects of it. I mean, I tweeted out my disappointment at the whole Becky Bianca Belair thing, where oh yeah, um, let let's just job her out in twenty six seconds and make her look like a total schmuck, which just continues the WWE piece of you know oh let's let's make our baby faces look like complete idiots like oh yeah let's turn becky lynch heel as as well let's let, let's bring her back and then do because we can't book anybody as a baby face it's like i, I said to somebody like the pga tour these days everybody's a freaking heel on there like every, everybody's a complete asshole like when did that happen it's like the wwe women's division it's like there's no baby faces at all it's like everybody has to be a heel. Like, why the hell is this? I don't know. But I, I enjoyed most of the show. I was shocked that I enjoyed the Edge versus Seth Rollins match so much. And I will cop to the fact that I marked out, but good, for Edge's entrance with the Brood theme song, for which I was dancing like a Peanuts character too. The one that ha- the girl that has her arms in the air going back and forth—that that was the basic Peanuts character that I was doing. And, uh, yeah, I I have to admit, do I like Edge? I don't know. I liked early Edge. You know, you think you know me and, you know, mysterious, you know, vigilante guy from all the vignettes. And the the brood Edge was okay, I guess, as well. But all in all, a good show. We had... Trans to and from, which was nice because trying to get there, I guess, is kind of a nightmare because they haven't quite figured things out at that stadium because they didn't have fans for the Raiders there last year and the Raiders season hasn't started yet, so not a lot of big events there. They're still kind of finding their way, but it was a great time on the bus. More on the way back for me. I, <laughs> I on the way there, I was basically the guy trying not to throw up because, as I mentioned, I was hung over. And it was really bad. Like if I had thrown up on that bus, I'm forever labeled the guy who threw up on the bus on the way to the SummerSlam, and that's not the kind of label that I want on me. So made it made it through that night, you know, just sort of wandering around on the strip after the show. Because the great thing is, show starts at 4:30 local time, is 7:30 East Coast time. 4.30 Vegas time, so when you get out of there, it's still kind of a reasonable hour, and you can go out to, you know, like a bar at Planet Hollywood Casino or what have you. I, some of the details I can't necessarily remember all all the way through. All I know is I did go to bed a little bit earlier, and I did not order a pizza as I did. So next day, we did, we did eat very well on Sunday, having dinner at Fogo de Chao, which... I made sure that I did not turn my damn card over. I was going to eat every single piece of meat that they brought over. And I was not – I wanted to be the last guy to turn his damn card over. So when another guy, he turned his card over, I I did it then because, you know, I, I didn't want to go any further. I figured it would be okay to be tied for first. Earlier in the day, we were all hanging out by the pool, but I snuck away in the morning, and I talked about this on GFA Live this week. Where I went down to the Gene lake beds where there used to be water many, many years ago. I'm talking thousands, you know, thousands upon thousands of years ago. And I went there mainly because the scene in Casino was filmed there. You
0: said I'm bringing heat on you? I gotta listen to people because of your fucking shit? You're ordering me out? You better get your own fucking army, pal.
3: My one regret was not yelling that into my phone and recording a video and singing that to Keith, although the cell phone reception there. By the way, Gene, Nevada has a population of zero. Nobody actually lives there. There's one casino, but the people all live either, you know, north in Vegas or in Sloan or south in Prim at the state line. But I had this weird, calm, serene feeling as I was walking around like this just desolate land that where there's no holes in the desert I, I i can assure you i checked beforehand but there were these weird like mounds that almost look like pitcher's mounds and i would get up on them and i would like throw rocks like i was a baseball pitcher The the people who were there must have thought i was insane because there was a bunch of you know suvs that were larger than the one that i had and it was mostly kids riding around on SUV, uh, ATVs, excuse me, what like they were still Cold Steve Austin when he was the general manager of Raw. It was really weird, but they were probably looking at me like, "What the hell is the matter with this guy? Like, what is he doing?" But I had the, it was the most calm that I've been in years. Just I felt fantastic after going there. So I need to make a mental note to go to the desert when i when I'm not feeling great. Unfortunately, I live in Massachusetts, so there's really. Much, not much I could do, really. I mean, I love New Mexico as well, but yeah, it's the it's the Nevada desert that I think really does it for me. So I mean, it was it was, I I I love the group that I went out there with, each and every one of them. Uh, I, I had I had such great fun. However, most of them left on Monday morning, and I, I wasn't leaving until Tuesday night, which meant I had to figure out stuff to do. Now I did not get to go downtown. We had wanted to go downtown as a group on Saturday night, and that would have been nice. That would have been a a nice change of pace, interesting. Downtown, though, has some construction going on, so it's kind of hard to get from place to place as it was. So I decided to go up there in my infinite wisdom on Monday afternoon, which, by the way, doesn't work because there's nobody there, and it's completely dead, and it's insanely hot, and I'm just like, you know, it's so dead here. I I gambled a little and I I won like 50 or 60 bucks at one of the casinos playing video poker because I I had decent luck in every game except for the one that I like most, which is multi hand blackjack. I was getting my ass reamed at the MGM Grand playing that. But every other kind of game, whether it be roulette, where I caught an incredible heater on Monday night, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but. I had you know, I had a couple of bets on the screen. One of the ones that I love to do is the zero double zero. So basically betting on green. It came up four times in twelve spins. It was a remarkable run. Now I, I kept quiet, you know, because it was one of those electronic ones with like an actual wheel in the middle. But I, I kept my mouth shut because <laughs> I, I'm not gonna make a scene like if I oh look at me look at how smart I am betting on green. But this was a bit that went all the way back to going to Bruins games in college where they would do the Foxwoods roulette wheel, and people would either have to bet on red or black. Most people would yell, always bet on black, like Passenger 57. But I would say green. The only time it would ever come up was on Fan Appreciation Day, because that meant everybody got $10 wampum certificates for Foxwoods. But anyway, downtown was dead. I had a rental car. So what did I decide to do? I decided to go to the Grand Canyon. Why the hell not? Now, going to the one... that everybody knows, the south rim of the Grand Canyon, that is an insanely long drive. It's like 400 miles. And I'm not going to there and back, you know, since I'm already in a hotel. But there is a thing called Grand Canyon West that is about 2 hours and 15 minutes from Las Vegas. So kind of a lonely, desolate drive where you go down US 93. It's now an interstate bypass going by the Hoover Dam, so you never actually see it, although... Considering the way that 18-wheelers would have to negotiate that road going through Hoover Dam, it is certainly for the best that they built that. So in any event, you get on US 93, a lonely, desolate road where, uh, when I say desolate, there's nothing there. Like, there's no towns or anything. And after 66 miles, you're to make a left turn. So you're basically by yourself for an hour, or in my case, about 48 minutes, the way I drove... And then after waiting all that time, like, oh, turn left. I missed the freaking turn because I thought it was like going to be like a lane cutout. But instead, it was like a bare left at a fork and then cut across the other side. So I had to go another mile up the road, you turn in, and then drive that road, which is another 50, 55 miles to Grand Canyon West which is actually the name of, like, the airport, but this is on a Native American reservation, the Hulapai. i do not even to try to pronounce it. But I had no idea what to expect when I got there. But basically, you have to park at this, you know, at, at, like, the airport, so to speak, and you go in through the visitor center, you buy your ticket for the day, and then you take a shuttle bus over. And I have to tell you that what I saw... With Grand Canyon West, previously was oh the view's not as good. It's it's not the same. The Skywalk is just a gimmick, which is basically this thing that goes, I don't know, about twenty five feet over the canyon, like out from the edge of the canyon, with a glass bottom where you could like look down. Now I would ta- I would have taken pictures of that, but you can you have to put your <laughs> you have to put your uh, phone and everything else in a locker. Uh, And then you also have to wear footies so that you don't scuff it up. But it was, it was amazing. Every bit the equal, I think, of the South Rim. And in fact, possibly better because it's not as crazy. There's not as many people around. You can, I mean, there were plenty of people. But you can just kind of take it all in. Now, I'm the weirdo who's by himself. And some other dude's like, hey, traveling by yourself, huh, pal? I'm like, yeah, all my friends left this morning. And he's like, oh, all right, nice talking. I'm like, what the, what the hell is that all about? But like, here, you know, there was a certain sense of serenity there, just looking at, you know, millions of years that water has carved this canyon. You know, I've I've been to the south rim of the Grand Canyon. It was like 15 years ago. And I did not spend a ton of time there. I didn't spend a ton of time here. It was, you know, probably like an hour and a half. I mean, you kind of see it. You take the shuttle bus to, like, the other stop there that doesn't have the skywalk. And then, then you move on. I, I wanted to drive back to Vegas. I wanted to get back before dark, mainly because I was always so concerned about the damn restaurants closing. Because I, I cannot stress enough the importance of eating in Las Vegas. Because alcohol is just absolutely everywhere. And you've, you've got to put down some food in order to maintain yourself for a quality evening. Let me tell you how bad it got with my forgetting to eat issue. Is When I walked down to the MGM Grand to meet everybody on the Friday... Well, first of all, I walked rather than take the monorail, which is kind of stupid. But also, I wanted to stop somewhere and eat... Unfortunately, you know, there's either long lines, it like an in and out burger or whatever. So I needed something fast. So where did I go? I knew of an old food court from when I lived there, and there was a Sabaros in there. So I got a slice of veggie pizza because I determined that the best way to get vegetables into my body is to put them on a slice of pizza. That was my theory. I wasn't going to sit down and order a salad. Like that just was not going to happen. So just pour a bunch of vegetables on a, on a pizza, and I'll eat it. And then I did it again the next day when I was hungover and had to go over to Bally's to get the bus to go to Allegiant Stadium for summer, excuse me, the SummerSlam. I don't know what season it is. I, I haven't looked it up on the Peacock at this point. So yeah, I, ca- I cannot stress that enough. Pandemic Vegas is interesting in that they do check for masks. Like, they have people stationed at the door, and... It wasn't too difficult. I mean, you know, I just kind of kept one on me and then, you know, step outside. I would usually take it off if it wasn't particularly crowded and if I was going to be outside for a while. Like, if I was just walking across the promenade to go to the Flamingo, well, I'd probably just leave it on at that point because, you know, going on and off is just, uh, I don't know. But uh, certainly a good time. I I love Las Vegas. I feel like I did okay gambling-wise. I mean, I probably net lost, but... You know, not a huge amount. You know, don't over serve yourself early on in your trip. You know, try to try to maintain maintain an even keel. But most importantly, it's great, it's best if you have a great group of people with you like I did. And I can't say enough about that. Now I, I'm not gonna say all, all all the names, but any any of them are listening, they they know who they are and I just want to say I, I, I love you guys so much and uh thank you for uh helping that helping me you know kind of kind of clear my head a little bit on that trip and holy crap is this intro run really freaking long i mean i kind of keep an eye on the clock where i told you i forgot how to do this show but usually these intros i will not run past 18 to 20 minutes And that includes, like, you know, the whole setup with Jesse wondering if Bruno ever did a night in the joint or or anything like that. But here, this superstars from August 22nd. This was taped in Madison, Wisconsin on August the 5th. This, of course, is the last year without a SummerSlam, which is why you don't necessarily expect a whole lot going on. You know, you're not quite to Survivor Series season yet there's no saturday night main event coming up you know there was a certain post wrestlemania 3 malaise as there was after wrestlemania 2 as well but here i mean it didn't really have a problem on this show so we got hulk hogan over macho man randy savage in one of the dark matches which to me is interesting because Savage was kind of going back and forth between faces and heels in terms of opponents, almost like they were kind of test driving him out for the eventual face turn. DiBiase, Million Dollar Man, makes his in ring debut. We get the debut of Oliver Humperdank under really bizarre circumstances. I mean, I've never, I have a lot of weird thoughts about wrestling. This is why I do a podcast. But I have never once sat on the toilet or somewhere else and been like, huh, I wonder how Oliver Humperdinck debuted in the WWF. Literally have never had that thought until I decided to do this show where he becomes a big part of it during the Paul Ordorf and Bobby Heenan segment. Sensational Sherry, well, this is where she wanted to be known as Sensational. And Strike Force gets their name on this show. And the battle for Bam Bam continues where they're working their way through all of the heel managers who want to add Bam Bam to their family, stable, what have you. But on the on this show, on this particular episode, Ken Patera actually does something notable. Now it's not, you know <laughs> it, it's not for the best. But that pretty much was the story of his 87-88 WWF run. Butch Reed Furthers his feud with superstar Billy Graham. I mean, just just kind of a little to-do there. We get a match between I don't I don't want to call this a feature match, but it is Sika and Kamala versus Jim Powers and Paul Roma. It's not the young stallions because they are not billed as such yet. And of course I had just mentioned Paul Orndorff and Bobby Heenan on the interview platform. So where everything old is new again with Orndorf and Heenan. We're basically running back the same thing that he did in May of 1985 on an episode of TNT. I'm 30 minutes in here, so I should wrap up the intro. But there is one other thing that I should address, and it's that, yes, I did bet on baseball when I was out there. See, guys named Pete can actually admit that right away. On the Friday night, I bet against the Baltimore Orioles on the run line Figuring they've lost by two runs for fourteen consecutive games, what's one more? And sure enough, they lost three to one, which was nice. But then I bet on them on Sunday, and that didn't quite work out. I mean, you know, they eventually broke the losing streak and then got swept by the Diamond uh, Diamondbacks. The Devil, right? Excuse me, the Rays. Now, Rays went eighteen and one against the Orioles this year. A freaking embarrassment that is but you know what i gonna save all my orioles stuff you know if, if i decide if my blood is angered up enough i'll just put all that stuff i'll park it at the end of the show I'll, I'll just anybody who wants to listen to this just listen through and then i'll have like a 20 25 second pause when i do the outro and then i'll go into my baltimore orioles rant because if anybody who follows my civilian account it's basically a turned into a brandon hyde hate account at this point but anyway this is a wrestling podcast. I'll turn it back in that direction right now. It's WWF Superstars, August 22nd, 1987. We're still about a year early for one of my favorite Vince McMahon things, which, of course, is when he becomes president of the local Chamber of Commerce and tells you what's going on in Madison, Wisconsin and how the ice capades are coming to town. But in lieu of that, we actually got something that is pretty good sub in its place. See, sometimes politicians will appear on wrestling shows like when that guy, I don't know if it was the governor of North Carolina, gave Ric Flair an award in 89, and of course the infamous Christy Todd Whitman appearance at SummerSlam 97. Well, right here on the weekly syndicated show, we got Hulk Hogan with the governor of Wisconsin, which is a familiar name to people who uh, remember the... Bush 43 administration, Tommy Thompson. we well, you know, I'm glad to be here with
1: Governor <laughs> Tommy Thompson, the toughest governor, the greatest governor ever from the state of Wisconsin. And I'm just a little worried that when you go to work tomorrow morning, don't be putting a big dose of Hulkamania on your whole crew.
0: We're going to put it on the whole state of Wisconsin, Hulk Hogan, and we want to present this to you from the state of Wisconsin, a citation honoring you for your tremendous uh, opportunities and pursuits as the champion of the world.
3: I'm just picturing Jesse Ventura listening to this like, Oh, he's the toughest governor? Oh, we'll see about that. Because believe it or not, Tommy Thompson, this of course is 1987. This is the year that he became governor of Wisconsin. In January, he took office. He's He was there through February of 2001 when he left to become Secretary of Health and Human Services under George W. Bush. So he was part of the National Governors Association at the same time as Ventura. And you know Jesse's got a long memory, so he probably brought up this Superstars episode. It's like, oh, so you're the toughest governor. I was going to do my Jesse voice, but I completely forget how it goes. And besides, Keith does it better than I do. Tommy Thompson, for a guy who was a politician for such a long time, pretty lousy promo, if you ask me. I mean, that's one thing that kind of connects politics and wrestling is... You gotta be a pretty decent promo, like either on the campaign trail or if you know, telling people to come on down to the Mid South Coliseum. But this is a guy, Thompson, who actually wanted to be vice president, which tells you how low a self esteem he has because nobody wants to be vice president. Have you ever seen the show Veep? Nobody! Lyndon Johnson did not want to be vice president. That's why he probably had Kennedy killed. I don't want to get in that whole conspiracy theory. Although, if you lined all of them up against each other, and now I'm starting to sound like Jesse, I do think the LBJ one sounds the most plausible because he held a lot of sway. The assassination took place in Texas. There's a lot of dots that can be connected here, so... Anyway, kind of an interesting open to this program. Once again, it, but there is another element that I enjoy from these 87 superstars, which is Vincent Bruno wearing matching suits and then Jesse wearing yellow and just st- sticking out like a sore thumb, and I absolutely love it. So why don't we just go to the first match here. It is Ken Patera against Tom Stone. And I, I looked at this on paper, and I was like, come on. Ken Patera? Versus a guy named Stone after he threw a rock through a window at a McDonald's and ended up doing time in the joint for that? Come on. Like, you, you've got to be kidding me, the fact that th- this was put together. I, I i cannot believe that he is facing a guy named Stone. There's no rib too small in the world of professional wrestling, or so it seems. So they, they kind of, you know, they're putting Patera over in the normal ways. Like, first man in the military press, 500 pounds which Jesse said, I don't do military press because it's too hard on the shoulders, of which Bruno kind of laughs at him. And, of course, they mentioned clean and jerk, which when it comes to weightlifting, I always like when they say clean and jerk. It's my favorite weightlifting term, and frankly, it's not even close.
0: Jim Katara, the first human being the military press, 500 pounds. What's your best lift in the military press, Jesse? I never used to do military presses. They're bad for your shoulders. Yeah. Not for the shoulders. Yeah. It's alright.
3: I liked when Bruno would give it back to Jesse because it was so infrequent and kind of out of character for him. I mean, he's just kind of laughing it off there. One thing I did not know about Ken Patera, and I, I can't believe this, as a kid who used to get sports almanacs for Christmas every freaking year, and would know stupid stuff like the coaching history of the Seattle Seahawks. Well, I did not know that Ken Patera's brother, Jack, was the first coach of the Seattle Seahawks. And he, in fact... He was NFL Coach of the Year for 1978. Although that was kind of a weird year in the NFL, a lot of a lot of drama going on with like the Patriots and the the Oilers and a bunch of other teams as well. Probably weren't going to give it to Chuck Noll since you know the Steelers had been so good for so long. But Patera, he's a couple months into his comeback. I right, covered the May of '87 debate with Heenan, which was at the beginning of that month. They they basically were running those vignettes for him in the aftermath of WrestleMania three. And then he shows up and he's at war with Heenan. And I'm not going to say he got super over, but I think it was okay. I mean, he was never going to reach the level that he was at, let's say, in 1980 when he was one of the best wrestlers in the world catches the foot of stone and an atomic drop clotheslines him over the top just barely like stone kind of had trouble making it over the rope so patera kind of gave him a little bit of an assist
0: right. listen ken patera takes matters in his own hands and he does what he has to do to win i'll bet you that's something he learned in jail
3: all right now he takes matters into his own hands sometimes it ends up through a mcdonald's window sometimes it doesn't but seriously all you think of is jail like It's a very loaded term, like, oh, this guy went to jail, okay, so now that's all we think about with him, and, (laughs) you know, you can't really put it out of your mind, but it is interesting that they're trying to do this redemption thing with him, instead of just inserting him back into the Heenan family, which, by the way, I don't think that would have worked either, because if you notice, and we see later on in the show with Orndorff, the Heenan family is starting to get a little crowded like, like if, if he had his own dressing room, they're, they're starting to run out of stalls there. It's like when they used to have the 40-man rosters for baseball in September, and they just kind of run out of space. That was the Heenan family in the middle of 87. Very heelish offense, though, from Patera. It's almost like he hadn't quite adjusted back yet. And he picks up Stone for a slam, and then immediately grabs his arm. And yes... This is the injury that would put him out for a couple of months and where he would come back and wear that awful-looking beige arm <laughs> arm brace that he had on at Survivor Series and would basically just kind of derail any semblance of a push that he did have. And yeah, he'd eventually come back and be teaming with Billy Jack Haynes, but Billy Jack was on his way out the door as well. So those Oregon guys, they were just going to end up... Uh, Losing to demolition and kind of putting him over that way. And Brady Boone would be involved. And you don't want Brady Boone in, involved. Uh, you you don't want to have, like, a job guy as part of your angle where, like, he's on your side. I don't think that's very helpful for any perspective push you might be having. So he's grabbing his arm. And when I saw that, I'm like, oh, now I wonder how the match is going to end. He hits an elbow drop. It's just a quick finish. One, two, three. I mean, you could tell... He's in a great deal of discomfort. He looks pissed off. But to Patera's credit, he does not say, you know, an F-bomb into the camera because if I'm him and I've done a couple of years in jail and I don't know the circ- all of the circumstances of the case. There, there, is, there is a case to be made that the guy got railroaded because you had a prosecutor who was up for you know, re-election. And, and when you have that, then all kinds of you know, crap can happen. But he looked he looked really pissed off walking to the back. From the pages of the World
2: Wrestling Federation magazine, here's update with Craig DeGeorge
3: it's the little production elements that they did around this time that I really love. Instead of just throwing it to Craig DeGeorge and then he starts talking at the desk, they have him thumb through a magazine, like almost like he's pantomiming, like he's waiting at the dentist's office to be called in or something, as if they would have WWF Magazine at the dentist's office. But anyway, th- this update is on the recent development of the split of the Magnificent Morocco and Cowboy Bob Orton, which they had been building... For a couple of weeks, you know, kind of miscommunication spots, dissension in the ranks, all that. So obviously you have to turn Morocco face because I, for some reason, I can't picture Bob Orton as a face any more than picturing, say, Ricky Steamboat or Tito Santana as a heel. So it makes perfect sense to me. And once again, they they had lost a match and then they started fighting each other. It's basically the same way that the Bolsheviks would break up some three years later.
0: Whoa. Oh, what a Whoa. Whoa, boy. Morocco wants to turn the oh. cheek. Oh, my, look at this. Orton hammering, raking the face of Morocco. Orton out the ropes now. We've got a match after a match. Orton over the top. Morocco's over as well. Get get well, I can tell you what, these guys have had their differences in the past. I don't think this one they're going to be able to reconcile
3: after this. All right, another one to add to the book of odd uh, Jesseisms: reconcile, not reconcile, reconcile. And indeed, these guys would feud for a brief period because with Orton, who we're going to hear from in a second, there really just wasn't a lot left for him to do. He's uh, I've established one of the great henchmen in wrestling history. He's the guy behind the guy. He's not he's not the guy you want out in front. Because I don't think he's necessarily suited to that. But there's literally, I don't think anybody better at being the guy who stands behind Roddy Piper or or what have you.
4: Don Morocco was on the edge of oblivion when I reached out with a hand to help him. I'm responsible for Morocco's success. Morocco, you think you're going to stand in the middle of a stream, an island in the middle of the stream? Watch out for the flood, daddy. The water
1: comes hard and the water comes high. Like a rock cast into the silence of a pond. All alone but creating ringlets of waves running on forever and ever
3: look I know what you're thinking and no I do not know when Morocco turned into Bill Walton because he sounds like him there they're talking about like the water will be high well it looks like that's not the only thing that's high here that's where I stand
0: magnificent Morocco no more managers no more partners ready to take on whoever has to be taken on in the WWF today
3: see I'm very convinced that Morocco was on something here because he's like no more managers I'm completely done with them and then like three or four months later (laughs) superstar Billy Grahams his manager
4: now get out you're banned from this historical society you and your children and your children's children for three months
3: the thing that's kind of funny about Morocco being joined up with superstar Billy Graham is they're both examples of guys that had they turned face earlier it may have been beneficial I'm saying that if maybe Morocco had turned around the time of the Fuji Vice stuff about a year before this I think Maybe things would have gone a little bit better.
0: One of the individuals who has a single cut, believe it or not, on Piledriver is the Slickster. He's singing something called Jive Soul Bro. Here's the Slickster on
3: Piledriver. For the sake of comedy, I'm going to cut Vince a break for how slowly he said Jive Soul Bro because it is funnier than if he had said it normally. unless he did his over-the-top Vince, in which case it would have been funny again. And I'm pretty sure he doesn't know who Captain Chameleon was, who did the original song Jive Old Foe. See, I'm kind of like Vince, you know, I, I'm completely incapable of saying it as well. Now, I thought that they might be throwing it to the music video, and I thought, oh my god, am I going to have to explain the racial overtones of what's going on at the beginning? But no, it's just Slick talking about how great he was on it.
1: Yeah, this is a slickster to here to tell you about the greatest single vocal performance of all time. I'm talking about Power Driver, the Wrestling 2
0: album. Yeah, and we ain't talking about no Pavarotti or no Billy Joel or no Lou Rawls. We talking about Jive Soul Bro. Oh, my goodness. Sounds like a winner to me.
3: Slick cares not for how you're supposed to pronounce wrestling. It's wrestling to him, even though wrestling is a term that's associated with Southern wrestling that the WWF, you know, would consciously try not to be. So it's funny from that regard, but also that is the only instance, and I am pretty sure of this, in the history of civilization in which a person has used the names Pavarotti, Billy Joel, and Lou Rawls in the same sentence. It's the only time that has ever happened and one of Slick's guys is up next he doesn't have a family name or anything that, that's catchy it's just Slick's crew of guys the natural Butch Reed is taking on Jim Evans who was also known as Trevor Adonis on the independence circuit he passed away January 1 of 2019 so a couple of weeks before this Butch Reed and Billy Graham had a pose down see it didn't start with the Ultimate Warrior and Rick Rue. You just recycle angles, and if you pretend that history doesn't exist, like the WWF was notorious for in the late 80s and early 90s, just you could recycle angles you know, within a year and a half of each other and just pretend that nobody is going to remember. And then from there, to
0: attack Superstar is one thing. To attack what was his vulnerable Achilles heel, if you would, the hip of Superstar is, in fact, in my mind, a disgrace. <laughs> really? Yes. I don't think so. If superstar Billy Graham is not capable to be in that ring 100%, if he has an injury as an opponent, of course you go after an injury.
3: I'm just going to gloss over the fact that Vince calls it Achilles heel, which Achilles heel, It's also referring to an injury to a part of the body as his Achilles heel when the Achilles heel is already a part of the body. Maybe find another term for that. I don't know. Maybe I'm just getting <laughs> stuck on, on language here today. But... This is why in like the NHL, they, they never say what injury a guy has. It's either an upper body injury or a lower body injury. I mean, in football, they they don't stand for that kind of crap because the gamblers need to know if somebody is questionable with a knee injury or whatever.
1: Butch Reed, superstar Billy Graham, the hip is back. You went after the hip. You attacked me. You tried to sabotage me. But let me tell you you something. I withstood the pain. I withstood the punishment. And superstar Billy Graham is coming after you, and you're going to have to pay the price.
3: Nobody's doubting Graham's promo work by any means, but he had absolutely no business in the ring because he could barely move. I mean, in 1986, he came back, had one match on TV, which was covered in the first Greetings in Allentown, and they decided, you know what, you need to go for more surgery to try and get well. And then this comeback here does not last very long either. And Vince always, I think, you know, there's a lot you can criticize about him, but he always tried to do right by Billy Graham. He tried to bring him in in 86 and, you know, brought him back in 87 when he was recovered and let him wrestle for as long as it was feasible. And then when it didn't work, he made him a manager Then he made him an announcer after that. And, and then eventually things broke down between those guys because, uh, you know, I, I can't blame Graham entirely, but the dude is very persnickety. I think that's basically why the term might... The, the term definitely applies to superstar Billy Graham. Now, as for Reed, we're only just seeing regular power stuff from him on Jim Evans. He pulls him up at two at one point and throws him out of the ring. Reed starts working the people in the front row, sends Evans back first into the ring post, and then in, back inside executes a press slam where he drops the man on his face... And pins the man with a boot. So we don't really have a whole lot of Ultimate Warrior yet at this point. He had only debuted off TV less than two months before this. So kind of shades of his finisher, but without the running splash. As for Reed, I, mean, I think he was hurt by this Graham feud. They did have the one kind of turn back the clock match in MSG in the cage where we got to, you know, relive all the great superstar Billy Graham memories. And that's fine. But if he couldn't go anymore and you cut it off and you have an injury angle, Butch Reed isn't even the guy who ended up injuring him. It was the one man gang who ends up getting the heat for putting Graham out of action. Yeah, yeah he helped, but this was his feud and i guess you got to give that to the bigger guy i mean there was i guess maybe more potential in the gang and who knows maybe they gave up on Butchery. i i have i have absolutely no idea but even if graham was healthier i mean what exactly is it is it going to lead to this isn't like paul orndorff and rick rude which is a similar feud between like you know well-built two well-built dudes and i got air quotes up there because clearly graham Graham wasn't all that well-built at this point if he was freaking falling apart and kept having that damn surgery. So Reed is feeling pretty cocky after dropping this guy, Jim Evans, on his face and pinning him with a single boot. So he's just going to take the opportunity here on Superstars just call out Billy Graham, who may or may not do a—well, it's definitely not going to be a run-in, I'll tell you that, because he does not move fast enough for it to be classified as such. He's yelling for superstar
0: Where Billy Graham. I know you fallen
4: star. I know you somewhere in this building, fool. If you got enough dick, you come out of here and face me right now. Look at this falling
0: over. Tell me, look at this falling over. I'm ready. I'm back. Superstar is on his way. Yes, there he comes. Whoa. Standing ovation. We're going to see it head to head right now. No backs turned here. Superstar Billy Graham. Challenged by Butch Reed. And a superstar in the ring. Look at this. Reed going to work. Superstar in the right hand. Oh, look out. You know what I always say, run today and live to fight another day. <laughs> yeah, he ran all right. Why did he run.
3: Yeah, definitely not a run-in, more of a stroll-in. And Like I said, Vince is a weird guy, but I think he tried to do right by Graham, who influenced so many guys down the road. So it's interesting to see him here, and of course, Jesse, with the whole superstar Billy Graham stole all my stuff, tongue-in-cheek humor at WrestleMania four, that I did not quite understand as a kid. As I said, it's kind of like, now that I understand it, it's like when that kid I went to high school with said that Pink Floyd was imitation U2. You're not making any sense. All right, stay tuned
2: for more exciting action. I happen to be reading the latest edition of the World Wrestling Federation magazine. By the way, some great reading in this month's edition. And it was a very interesting article on my guests at this time. I want to bring them in. They are from Montreal, Quebec, Canada. They have carved out quite an ish for themselves of the World Wrestling Federation. And I'd have to say, Raymond and Jacques, come on in, gentlemen. Right now, you are the top contending tag team for the world titles that are currently held by the Hart Foundation.
3: Yes, indeed, they did get title matches against the Hart Foundation, not just in Montreal, although they did do a title switch in Montreal as kind of one of those special local angles that Pat Patterson liked to book, and then, you know, kind of, kind of their version of the dusty finish. What's dusty finish in French, anyway? I should probably look that up, but the only title that they're contending for right now is of the most bland babyface tag team they're in a battle with the killer bees i mean that's why one of them had to turn heel in 88 it was it was going to be one of them and of course what we didn't know about the rougeos is that they didn't have to be that bland But it was the 80s, and you could get away with that more. Now, Jacques eventually evolves into the Mountie in Quebecer, and we see that he does have a personality, and Raymond becomes an interviewer and a broadcaster, and never really see much of a personality from him. A little, maybe some shades of it when they're they're heels. But yeah, for now, they're basically just the killer bees, but are able to speak French.
0: Well, you know, Mean Gene, there's so many great teams in the World Wrestling Federation, so many great people. It's been an honor for us just to have joined the World Wrestling Federation, including all the promoters, the great cities we've been to, all the competition, and most of all, Mean Gene Okerlund, the Hart Foundation, who have made a name for themselves in the World Wrestling Federation as the team, the World Tag Team Champions. Well, there's one thing that we want to say to you, Hart Foundations. Raymond, let them know how we feel about this situation.
2: All right, the Hart Foundation, Brett the Hitman Hart, and Jim the Anvil Night Hart, they're in the driver's seat right now. They are the champions, Raymond.
0: They're in the driver's seat, Mean Gene, but we're right behind them and
3: closing in fast. Like you said, we are the number one team right now for the tag team championship. And we've been working a long time to build our way up there, Mean Gene. We started at step one and built it all the way up. Right behind the Hart Foundation, and the only reason we are behind them is because they are the champions right now. But me and Gene, as soon as we can get a title shot against the Hart Foundation, we will all of a sudden take the lead on them, and we will become the new tag team champions.
1: All
0: right. You know, there's a big factor that's not helping nobody. No, not one team in the world wrestling federation is that Jimmy Hart that keeps putting his nose in everybody's business, and we sure feel. Real great if the World Wrestling Federation could do something about it and get Jimmy Hart out of their corner.
3: Well, Jacques' attitude on Jimmy Hart would change awful fast now, wouldn't it? Jacques and Bret, they are just forever linked in ways that you never think about. Yeah, they're having a little feud, I guess, or program for the tag team titles here in 87. But then, fast forward a couple of years, you got Bret... And the Mountie for the Intercontinental title leading into the Royal Rumble, where Brett loses it right beforehand. And then, of course, you got Brett and Owen at 94 Royal Rumble taking on the Quebecers. So it's another Brett and Jacques match. They they were on opposite sides at the Royal Rumble, but not in the Rumble match for three out of six years. 89 as well, because it was the Hearts and Duggan versus Dino Bravo in the Rougeaus in a two out of three falls match so yeah those, those guys are just forever linked was Jacques Rougeau to Bret Hart's greatest rival I'm gonna say that he was because he didn't go screwing up NXT like some other rivals that Bret Hart had but yeah very funny how he flipped on Bret Hart by the way while I was listening to that Rougeau thing I, I checked out what dusty finish is in French what it would be pronounced as okay I was kind of afraid to say that myself because I was probably going to mispronounce it and say something else.
1: The battle for Bam Bam rages on. Mr. Fuji, bad news. No Bam Bam. You're out of the running. What? Mr. Fuji has no Bam
0: Bam? What go on?
3: Hey, speaking of recycled angles, it's the battle for Bam Bam in which all the heel managers are jockeying to try and bring in this guy, Bam Bam Bigelow, who hasn't actually debuted on TV yet. But the great thing about it is you're building him as sort of like a monster in advance here without anybody ever having seen him. Now, I said recycled because similar thing was done for Randy Savage upon his debut in the middle of '85 where all the managers kind of came out to watch him wrestle and were lusting over him. Savage was, you know, by himself, and then Elizabeth comes out after, you know, probably about his third or fourth appearance. Here, they're doing cross-offs of the various managers until they get down to one guy, which is Heenan, which, again, why would you want to join his family? I mean, there's no spot for you at this point. It's too damn crowded. It's like... If you're a first-line center, why would you sign with the Tampa Bay Lightning? There's absolutely no room for you on that roster. Or, like, if you're a center fielder and you're going to play for the Angels, like, why the hell are you doing that? Because they already have Mike Trout. Although, I guess he hasn't been around for a while. He's been injured. Boy, that team, that franchise is definitely star crossed. They have, like, the best player in baseball every year, and they finish under 500. Although, with that being said, I would much rather root for a team that goes 78 and 84 and actually tries rather than one that goes 49 and 113 every freaking other year. So, yes, yeah, so another cross off of Mr. Fuji, and this now leads into a couple of Fuji's charges of course they they have other guys coming to the ring with them, well, Kimchi, the wizard was phased out right after Wrestlemania Three Kamala and Sika taking on the not the young youngs not the young stallions, Jim Powers and Paul Roma, although the stallions are kind of in the incubating phase here. They even kind of got like a little bit of a rub from Mr. T during that aborted he's the enforcer referee angle he had overturned a decision a couple of weeks before where Brett pinned one of the young stallions Roma Powers with his feet on the ropes. Mr. T comes down, reverses the decision, so they get a win over the heart foundation you know not exactly the strongest victory in the world but Mr T raises their hands but the problem was Mr T's star had fallen precipitously since 1985 i mean we saw how it was from 85 to 86 and this one this one's very well hidden because unless you've watched specific primetime wrestlings from the summer of 87 you would you would never know watching the WWE network that this is a thing that ever took place as for Kamala and Sika Sika hung around till WrestleMania 4. He was in that battle royal and then was one of the annual casualties, like one of the cuts right after WrestleMania. And Kamala apparently no-showed a Saturday Night's Main Event in October of 87 against Hogan, or did he? That's what I always thought. That's what I always heard. And then Hogan ended up facing Sika in, in his place, but Kamala was gone after September the 6th, and did a ton of jobs on the way out, kind of giving the idea that, yeah, he did give notice. So I don't think that he no-showed the Saturday Night's Main Event, as has been commonly assumed by people, even me. So is this a Young Stallions push here? What What, what is the reason for this? On the babyface side, like I, like I was saying, it's crowded with bland babyface tag teams. But Okay, here's the young and up-and-coming team with powers in Roma. But you got the Bulldogs, you got the can connection, until Tom Zink quit, and now you got Tito Santana with Martel, which we'll get to a little later. The Rougeaus, the Killer Bees, all of them would rank over Roma and Powers. So okay, you try to position them as like the good-looking guys. I I, I don't know what, what you're trying to do. The problem here is that we kind of seen them lose on TV for too many years. And it was kind of hard for people to get behind them. They were kind of like the Baltimore Orioles of tag teams in certain ways. Except I didn't go absolutely insane every single time the Young Stallions lost a match. I, I can assure you of that. But yes, they did beat the Heart Foundation. So they're, they're getting a rub there even if it was you know just through a DQ. So Roma and Kamala start and Roma is kind of rolling around the ring trying to make Kamala chase after him a shoulder block by Roma fails as would have been expected as Kamala kind of does that jumping jack flash thing that he would do kind of like the leapfrog but he's leaping over nothing followed up by a heel miscommunication spot Powers gets in there and immediately ends up in trouble I, I'll say this for Paul Roma. I, I, I don't particularly care for some of some of his act after the way he sandbagged Alex Wright at Super Brawl 5. However, he was the El Jefe on this team. And apparently, Jim Powers was not exactly the most reliable sort in the world, and that's kind of why he was in the position that he was in. But he, he ends up in trouble right away, and a sunset flip with assistance from Roma, who enters illegally, which pisses off Jesse something fierce. And Bruno... He, he senses something here because Jesse, of course, advocates for cheating, but not from the faces. So Bruno kind of calls shenanigans on the body.
0: Listen, if you were in there with a partner, surely you would want to do everything you possibly could to wear down Kamala Enseka. Certainly, I'd try teamwork like what you guys are talking about. Aren't, aren't, right, you the, aren't you the one who always says win any way you can? That's right. i like
1: criticize these guys.
3: See, if we could have just gotten this Bruno on commentary, we push his back. I love Jesse, but I like Jesse when he gets something pushed back upon him rather than just kind of going unchallenged. I think that certainly helps the dynamic. Now, I'm going to tell you something in this match that is absolutely hilarious that I thought I would never see, and that is Sika going over for arm drags on, like, three or four consecutive occasions. It kind of made me wonder, like, should we, should I seek out, uh, no pun intended, a Ricky Steamboat versus Sika match just to see if there's a bunch of arm drag spots? See him go go for the ride on the Steamboat arm drag? I don't think it really matters, but because he eventually regains control rather quickly.
0: You know what I'd like Ooh do, He's got a Bob Marley haircut. A what? Bob Marley, Rastafarian. You ever hear of them? Of course. <laughs> off off. Ooh, look at that maneuver down to the midsection now. That's a religion I might practice. I doubt you would practice. Well, we won't speak of that. Nonetheless...
4: Dad,
3: you cannot wear
4: that. That's a Rastafarian hat.
0: Hey, I've been Safarian since before you were
3: born.
4: Wearing a Jamaican hat makes a bold statement about your connection to reggae music.
3: Well, excuse me. Well, it certainly would have been interesting to see Jesse Ventura in a Sika wig at some point. As Paul Roma is now the one in trouble, Jim Powers tries to come in and help, as Vince starts just killing the ref for enforcing the rules, which I found rather amusing. But all four men inside... The stallions or the proto-stallions, they do the kind of the do-si-do in the center, dole-out drop kicks for each man. Kamal and Sika both end up on the outside, and that is where they stay. A, a count-out victory for Paul Roma and Jim Powers, and they celebrate wildly in the ring on this summer day. A, starting a summertime WWF tradition of over-celebrating count-out victories because Kamala's here, he's a main event kind of guy who's now just dabbling in the tag team division. So that guy's going to get his heat back.
0: Wait a minute. Kamala just charged. Roman Powers. Yeah, they're coming all right. Right down to the (laughs) mat. They're going to pay now. Roman Powers. Oh, no. Victorious in this matchup. But Mr. Fuji is directing traffic in there now. Oh, no. Whoa. Romo. Romo's down on the canvas. Samoa threw across the chest. Great teamwork. Tremendous teamwork. Look at this. I think we're gonna see that. Yes, Samoa dropped right into the ribs. Hey. He's oh, gonna no. go up the other rope. No. 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 More officials coming into the ring, but not before Kamala comes down again. There is no call for that. Kamala and Sika, that's called teamwork, lost a match to Powers and Roma. There's no get that beast down from there. They sure did that. Like they lost to me. That's kind of funny when the winners are in the
3: prone position. I'm not going to suggest to you that a stronger push. For Roma and Powers, as the young stallions was going to work, I mean, after all, they won the match at the Survivor Series in November, along with the Killer Bees. I, I guess it was try and elevate the fourth and fifth best tag teams in the division. It's, it's one of the more unusual pay-per-view results in WWF history that I could think of. But, yeah, they're not exactly being pushed strongly right here. You know, they're not getting a ton of offense. But then again, this is Kamala and Sika. I mean, I don't know what I'm expecting. It's kind of a nice farewell of sorts. It's not totally goodbye. I think Kamala would show up a couple of times on TV after this. But, yeah, for the K-man, I mean, he's winding things down here. But him and Sika as a team departing the tag team division – allowed demolition to move up because let's remember it took demolition a while to get themselves established i mean here in summer of 87 they're really not much of an entity at all they're not really feuding with anybody so the importance of turning over the roster every so often cannot you, you you have to do that like guys who just hang around for so long like freaking Dolph Ziggler's been there for 15 years and makes $1.4 million. What the hell is he contributing? We don't have to sob every single time Nick Khan cuts somebody. I mean, you know, yeah, if it's your favorite, okay, that's all well and good. But if Dolph Ziggler gets cut, then fine. The dude probably needed to move on years ago. It just so happens now that there's a competing promotion and <laughs> that they can now go over to. We go now to the interview area, and I have to admit, I like the event center era better than these interviews. Yeah, sometimes you get some real gems here, but sometimes you get boring interviews like the Rougeau ones earlier. And Gene is here with Brutus the Barber Beefcake. And speaking of those Montreal-only angles that I referred to with the Rougeaus, around this time, he had kind of a thing with Pat Patterson, opposite sides of a six-man in June, And then when they returned to the forum on August the 10th, Patterson beat Brutus using a foreign object, which then led into a match three weeks later on the 31st where Beefcake defeated Patterson with Mr. T as the special referee. The last bout that Pat Patterson would have that I could find on record until the whole Stooges thing in 98, 99, and 2000 and the whole Attitude Era. So anyway, this is all about Burtis here. You remember old Burtis, don't you? He's one of the great barbers in history. And his issue is, well, more with the Dream Team now, because Adrian Adonis is, in the immortal words of former Red Sox broadcaster Ned Martin, long gone and hard to find.
1: I wouldn't be able to use this type of apparatus. Here I'd have to go to something a lot better. A lot more horsepower, you might say, to get the
3: job done on Dino Bravo. Well, five and a half years later, some mafia guys up in Quebec would take that all under advisement and would increase their horsepower, as old Bertus put it, and would take care of Dino Bravo in the way the only way that they know how.
1: You know that stuff, that steel wool, that bleached blood, greasy stuff he calls hair, you know, it's sickening and makes me sick. I don't even want to touch it.
2: You know, these gentlemen, the new dream team, luscious Johnny V, they really worked you over in WrestleMania three. They totally abandoned you, and I, and I can't blame you for, for holding some animosity. But as happened subsequent to WrestleMania three, it really puts the, the topping on a cake, so to speak.
1: Well, Gene, you know what happened in WrestleMania three? It was a big day for me, man. There I was at center stage, 90-some thousand people around, and there I am by myself. My team and my manager, my partner of years,
2: just walked away and left me. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, you have gotten back, you've gained a little revenge. I would have to say part of it coming in the form of a haircut or a hairstyle to luscious Johnny V. Well, there's gonna be a lot
1: more butt kicking going on, man. The haircut, that's nothing, man. That's nothing compared to what I'm going to do when I step into that combat zone, man. The Clippers are going to be clipping, and the Strun's going to be strutting,
3: man. Center stage, butt kicking, I mean, butt, booty man, Burtis to WCW confirmed. Anyway, it took him a while to get going, too. I mean, these guys, it takes a while for things to ramp up. Demolition didn't become that overnight. Brutus the Barber, it took a while for him to build to that. He'd been in there as a heel for two and a half years. That's, that's how it worked. Things did not just happen instantaneously just because it worked that way for Hulk Hogan when he came back.
0: driver, the rustling album, too. We make reference to Rick Derringer, who also really cuts loose on the vocal demolition. Let's take
2: you now to Rick Derringer. I uh, wrote... One of the songs, it's an old song of mine, Rock and Roll, Hoochie Coo, and I'm real proud to have it on the World Wrestling Federation album. Uh, Mean Gene is the vocalist on that one, and he was surprisingly a really good rock and roller, not just a great announcer, but he's a real true rock and roll star, I think. Uh, The songs are definitely just legitimate good songs that any good artist could do. In this case, it's the superstars of the World Wrestling Federation, and there's a lot of talent there. That's a good
3: get, if you will, to get rick derringer to be part of the wrestling album and then pile driver wrestling album too as a producer you think of his long career both you know as a guitarist you know in, in many bands he made guest spot he was on a he was on a kiss song at one point and, and did lots of stuff but you know what actually apparently brought him to vince mcmahon's attention it was that he was the guitar soloist on Weird Al Hankovic's Eat It, which was only a few years before the first wrestling album. In fact, might have even been less than a year. Yeah, that's how he came to Vince's attention. Excuse me. I'm pretty sure that it came to somebody else's attention who brought it to Vince, who said, That's good shit, pal. And that's pretty much it. <laughs> But he certainly adds credibility to this whole thing. I mean, just think, okay, The WWF is making an album. All right, well, it's just a bunch of hokum and silly crap. And it kind of was, but it was enjoyable because it had the credibility of a Rick Derringer backing things up because he produced a lot of stuff as well, including the the Weird Al thing. So we go right into our next match, which is the Islanders newly joined up with Bobby Heenan a couple of months before this as part of the Heenan Family Offensive. Taking on Jerry Allen and Mike Richards. And let me tell you something. This is not the Mike Richards who thought he could host Jeopardy. But I get the sense that it is nice that a guy named Mike Richards is going to get the crap beat out of him by Haku in about two minutes here. It's also not the Seinfeld Mike Richards because he's Michael Richards. And it's not the Philadelphia Flyers Mike Richards who... They traded to the LA Kings, which is actually a good trade because he had like nine years left on his contract. Got busted for drugs at the Canadian border and then eventually got his contract terminated. But he's on, as part of a weird deal, he's on like the LA Kings salary cap for 200 grand for the next like 10 years. And I don't quite understand how that broke down. But anyway, right now the Islanders are in a feud with Rick Martel, although he had Tito Santana help him out. The week before in fighting off the Islanders, because Tom Zenk had quit in early July, and Martel they weren't going to just abort the feud, and apparently they were so determined to have Martel as only a single as only a tag team wrestler and not as a singles wrestler, which another great rewriting of history is when Martel came back in '86, they really made no reference to him being a tag team champion twice back in '81 with Korea. It's basically treating him like he was a he was a new guy. So where do the Islanders rank in terms of the tag team pecking order? I mean, the tag champs are heels, so the Islanders are number one. I mean, the Hart Foundation is number one. So where do the Islanders rank in? I actually have them at number two. Because I feel like they moved up. Heenan gives them instant credibility, and I rank them above demolition, who I have at three. Things are a little thin. Sika and Kamala, I'm not entirely sure how to rank them. I guess I would rank them between 2 and 3 at this point. I'm just thinking in terms of they are going to be gone soon. And the Islanders were the last heel team surviving in the Survivor Series. I would have the Dream Team fourth because they were clearly winding down, in my opinion. The Hart Foundation did defend against heels on a kind of a regular basis or had matches against heels. I think they want a Sheik and Volkov, but of course Sheik is long gone because of his exploits on the Jersey Turnpike. So it's tough being the Heel team when you have Heel champions in only one title. So I don't think we got any hard foundation versus Heel Islanders matches. Well that would have been somewhat interesting, I think. But their feud was really good. Not so much with the Can Amps because that didn't even have time to breathe. Before Tom Zink took off, Tito Santana makes his way in, team him with Martel against Haku and Tama, and you have great matches all over. Certainly one of the more underrated tag team feuds in WWF history, or maybe it's properly rated at this point because you know enough people with whose opinions I value have put that over rather strongly. And this this is real quick squash here. I get a double headbutt. But yes, and it kind of puts things away quickly. They don't even do the full finish with the splash off the top by Tama. What about that feud with Rick Martel and Tito Santana? Now, I have. Unlike Oliver Humperdinck's debut, I used to think about how did Strike Force get their name? Well, I would read about it years later on the internet. Oh, this is how it happened. Okay. Well, now, of course, it is on this episode that I actually get to see the thing that I read about 20-plus years ago.
1: Rick Martel, Tito Santana, we just saw the Islanders. What would you think? No, I'm not impressed because now I've got my man Tito with me, and I'm telling you what, they're going to pay for it. They're going to pay two-on-one no more. No, that's right, Rick. I was with you last week, and I'm going to be with you from now on. And we're going to be striking. With force, baby! I'll tell you what, that doesn't sound bad. What, what about the strike force? We're going to strike them with them with lightning force! With lightning force! Very catchy name and a new tag team force. strike force! Yeah.
3: Right. Well, that seemed kind of forced, no pun intended. I'm glad Tito became a pro wrestler rather than an actor in a telenovela because you know, he'd be chewing on scenery. I don't think you'd have to worry about him turning up for the Daytime Emmy Awards. So strike force... A pretty cool name. It's been used a lot since then for other stuff, for I think a video game. There's a Strike Force, I guess kickboxing promotion around the same time, but you know, other things called Strike Force. Apparently, a nineteen seventy five television film starring Richard Gere was called Strike Force, airing in April of nineteen seventy five on NBC. And the plot of it goes a federal agent and a New York City detective joined forces with a state trooper to break up a drug ring, inspired by the real life theft of narcotics, of the narcotics held in evidence of the French Connection case, discovered missing from the NYPD property clerk's office in 1972. So, a very young Richard Gere in that one. I don't know how old he was really at that point. I mean,. 75 he's 25 years old he was born in 1949 but also using the name strike force was a television series from 1981 that aired on abc only for one season the 81 82 season it was an Aaron spelling joint of all things and it starred robert stack as captain frank murphy the leader of a special unit of specialized detectives and police officers whose job was to stop violent criminals at any cost Usually with a hail of gunfire. Mixing elements of Snack's classic television series, The Untouchables, from 20 years earlier with doses of Mission Impossible and Dirty Harry, the series immediately provoked controversy over its violence. Well, that didn't really happen with Strike Force. In fact, you, know, you get to WrestleMania 4, and the crowd, which albeit was a weird crowd, cheering for demolition in that one because maybe people were tired of Strike Force. Maybe it was just the wrong crowd. I don't know. But. Maybe not enough gun angles with Martel and Tito. Is that we're suggesting for for two guys who are calling themselves Strike Force? But in any event, it's a good thing Tom Zenk quit because Tito Santana is much better than him, and they weren't using Tito for a whole hell of a lot. So he was certainly blessed with this opportunity, and it's nice to see him and Martel getting along because it feels like their feud lasted about twenty years <laughs> when they broke up at WrestleMania Five so right into the next match which is Killer Khan definitely a creature of summertime 1987 WWF taking on Billy Golden and it, not even not even the most killer named Khan in WWF history the way most people would tell it you know I already mentioned Nick Khan and kind of defended him in a certain way although those cuts are are pretty deep but I'm not entirely sure they're going to miss too many of those guys but Anyway, like I said, they got they, you got to turn over the organization. you got to turn over a sports team. Like you can't win a championship and just bring back the whole entire same team. Rarely is that a good idea. Frankly, my take on NXT, I saw that they unveiled a new logo. I haven't watched in a very long time, basically since the 2016 brand split was when I stopped investing in the product because their roster just got completely decimated. But now they're going back to this model where, all right, more of, I guess, an OVW thing where we're going to try and create big stars rather than bringing guys who have worked on the independent circuit And then kind of having like a super indie promotion run by Triple H. But let's think about OVW. I I love how I'm talking about this during a Killer Con match. But whatever. In 2000 and 2001, OVW had Cena, Brock Lesnar, Randy Orton, Batista. I mean, why would you move away from a model that is creating such mega stars? It's just churning them out like that. Or maybe they just got lucky for those years. I, I don't know. But... If if that's the for- – I mean, if the formula is going to produce that, I think you're doing pretty damn good. It would stand – it would be good if they would produce another Brock Lesnar because, quite frankly, I don't know what we're getting out of the current one. I know he showed up at SummerSlam, which, by the way, I did not mention this in the intro. I was in the bathroom when Brock showed up. I heard his music from the bathroom, but I didn't really care. I mean, yeah, I saw his hair, and it was kind of amusing, man-bun Lesnar. And it's kind of funny. I don't feel like I missed anything. You know, I really had to pee. And I did that thing where when the bell rang on Cena and Reigns, I was up into the bathroom because I didn't want anybody to get in there. There There's only two bathrooms in that suite, and there was a lot of people there. So Killer Khan, who was kind of brought in as a monster to challenge Hogan, is the famous snake pit angle where he blows the mist in Hogan's face that they only aired in a couple of different Markets, kind of an underrated career because he was the kind of guy you could bring in to a territory similar to Kamala, although I think maybe slightly better results with Killer Khan. I mean, I think that's debatable. He had the feud with Andre back in '81, that by all rights is successful, and then keeps Hogan occupied in the middle of '87. Here at Billy Gold, he's just kind of mauling him. I mean, you're not going to see any vertical suplexes with Killer Khan. It's just the most basic of basic stuff. And in fact, you can kind of tell that he's winding down. He never, he, he doesn't even end up on Survivor Series. So you can make an argument, is Killer Khan the most consequential guy to never appear on a WWF pay-per-view? Who has appeared since 85 in the, I guess, pay-per-view era. He's certainly in the discussion. I mean, he had a world title program, for God's sakes. But they're talking more about the battle for Bam Bam because of Fuji being eliminated, Fuji being the manager of Killer Khan. We see the green mist in the middle of the match. Referee sees it on poor Golden's face like, oh, I don't know where that could have come from. I can't call it because I didn't see it. Knee off the top rope finishes. And Khan would do that very well. For a guy of his size. I mean, it was probably hell on his knees, but it looked good. Ooh, that's devastating.
0: Look at that. Ooh, ooh. All right, ladies and gentlemen, my guest, of course, Bobby the Brain Heaton. Mr. Heaton, I must say, was a bit skeptical. I mean, last week you did say you were going to produce Paul, Mr. Wonderful Ornith, right here, and you are true to your word. I must compliment you. Let me tell you something I don't lie. If I tell you I'm going to have something here, I've got something
3: here. You know, I have to issue a correction from earlier about the battle for Bam Bam. It wasn't Heenan the last guy at the end. It was Slick, which led into Bam Bam's first big TV match against Nikolai Volkov. Like, what the hell was I thinking with that? Heenan was occupied with other stuff. You can't just put him in every angle. So, if you're going to jump down my throat when you listen to that, I probably deserve that because it took me a while to realize that I was wrong. So, here is Heenan, and apparently they are going to come to a resolution with this thing because been saying oh rick rude's got a better body than paul orndorff which all that reminds me of is that thing from major league when jake was like stalking lynn and went to the library to have a conversation with her and <laughs> bringing up all the stuff for the past and lynn mentions a woman that jake was, just, Who was I was supposed to do she bet me 50 bucks she had a better body than you and i had to defend your honor i would have played the clip but i can't find the damn clip online I'm not going to be chasing down... St- I've, I've made a promise to myself to not waste 20 minutes chasing down clips for no real reason. So, Heenan's out there. He, he brings out Orndorff. And everything old is new again with these guys because we're, we're just running back angles from two and a half years ago.
0: That Mr. Wonderful will admit to you about Ravishy Rickrod Ricker's body. He will admit that he is glad to have him in the family. Mr. Wonderful... Please, come on up here. Here he comes. We will get the word from Mr. Wonderful, Paul Orndorff. Mr. Wonderful, I want you to tell the people and set the record straight how glad you are that Rick, ravishing Rick Rude is in the Bobby Heenan family and that he has the greatest physique in the family, in wrestling, in sports today. You really want to know you tell them how you welcomed him with open arms, how you were glad that I have him in the family, I've got Bam Bam Bigaloo just about signed, everything's going my way, and how you approved of everything. You really want to know. You tell the humanoids about Rick Rude's body, how he's got the best body, you got a great body, but his is like that much better, you tell them. You
4: really want to know Wanna know. Well I'm gonna tell you what I think. First of all, Rick Rude does not have a better body than Mr. Wonderful. No.
0: No, no, tell them what you told me. And second of all, I'm sick and I'm uh, I'm
4: sick. And I'm tired, I'm sick, and I'm tired of lying for you. And lying to those people. Come on, Come on get a hold of yourself here. And lying to
0: myself. Oh I, oh I made you a star. I made you what you are today.
4: You made me nothing but misery. Misery. What about the family? I want to
0: tell you what I think of Rick Rude and the family. That's what I think. And I'm going to tell you something else. I want to tell you something else that you've heard before.
3: You're... The way this angle is presented is so weird. Yeah, I know, it's a heel kind of berating one of his guys, but, yeah, please admit how much your body sucks compared to Rick Rude, who I just acquired and is much, much better than you. Please just admit that to everybody. It's like, Hayden's a dude trying to get fired so he can go on unemployment or something. You know, he's got other guys to make. It's like, he wants Orndorff to dump him at this point. It's like... You know, I did that in high school, too, where I was like, you know what? I don't feel like doing the whole breakup thing with the girl I'm going with. So, basically, I just said a bunch of stuff that, that caused her to break up with me. I'm like, all right, that's fine. That's fine with me. Moving on. That's pretty, yeah, the the playing from the Pete High School playbook of, of dealing with girls, which probably isn't the best idea going forward. So, now, okay, we got Orndorf and he's going to be going up against the Heaton family. But that doesn't mean he isn't going to take on a manager of his own because enter Oliver Humperdink But, oh, no, this is not his debut here where he just randomly gets introduced as Paul Woodruff's manager. The previous Monday on Primetime Wrestling, a very rare Primetime debut of a guy on TV, they had him out for a platform interview I don't know if the people had any idea who this guy was, and he just says, you know what, I'm a manager here, and Bobby Heenan gives managers a bad name and starts running down Heenan. So we set it up that way.
4: And I'm going to tell you something else. I want to introduce to you my new manager, Oliver Humperdinck.
0: Of Mr. Wonderful Paul
3: Laundorf, yeah, the Heenan family was a little crowded, so Paul Orndorff should have been looking for a way out. I mean, if it wasn't rude, it was going to be Hercules, right? Because he's there, too. He's a pretty built guy. It's not 91 Hercules where he looked like he was near death or anything. But by the way, speaking of not looking good... Oliver Humperdinck, who I'm sure you remember, he was a manager in Florida prior to all of this. And maybe at some point I'll get to a Championship Wrestling from Florida show from earlier in the 80s. But at this time, he was 38 years old. Oliver Humperdinck was 38 years old for the majority of the time that he was a manager in the World Wrestling Federation. 38-year-old Oliver Humperdinck. I look at that guy and I'm like... Jesus, I look damn good for 42. I look like a freaking Adonis compared with that guy. So, I don't know, sometimes I I say that so-and-so is such an age and it makes me feel old. That actually makes me feel great about myself, that Oliver Humperdinck was 38 years old when he was the freaking manager of Bam Bam Bigelow or when he was introduced in Paul Orndorff and all the rest. We asked Tom Edmonds, world-famous recording engineer, for his opinion of the Wrestling
2: Album 2, Driver," and here's what he had to say.
1: We cut this record
0: at the Hit Factory, which is a fantastic state-of-the-art studio, and we mixed it at Platinum Island. Um, The record's all digital, ready for CD. It's total state-of-the-art, the the whole record. It's it's fantastic. The quality is unbelievable. One of the best records I've worked on. Everybody did a great job. Um, It's probably... He's going to be a masterpiece, this record. I mean, it's just going to be huge.
3: Now if you think they're going over the top here with the promotion for Pile Driver, oh, just you wait until you get into September in October, because then you're going to start airing the videos. I mean, they're still airing the videos in November. The episode where Graham gets injured, they aired the demolition video, which is awesome. I have no objection to any of that. And certainly, if you do have an album out like this, I, I guess if you can get all these blurbs and everything... I I have no problem with it. They're cramming in a lot of matches on this show, though, and they probably have to trim about 40 seconds off every one of them. And our final bout is Coco Beware versus Chris Curtis, who around this time, in fact, it may have been the same weekend because I know it aired on Primetime Wrestling around this point, Curtis was the one who picked up a win as part of a Ted DiBiase angle where DiBiase paid... A fella named Ted Washington, I think his name was. Not to be confused with the 2003 Patriots defensive tackle. But anyway, paid him, and then Chris Curtis dominated him, beat him in like two minutes, and then Virgil and DiBiase took the money back from out of his trunks. Very uncomfortable moment where, like, DiBiase reaching into the the front of this guy's trunks, like, your hand was down there for an awfully long time. But anyway, I'll save my thoughts on that in case I ever do that episode. But it's a Coco Beware match in 1987, so that means one of two things. They're going to bring up Pile Driver, which they do, but also the unfortunate Jesse Ventura kind of racial element to it where he wants to call the black man Buckwheat so badly and he's going to cram it in any way possible.
0: The Birdman! Get back to that album. Does Buckwheat yeah, sing Co-coe. on that? Does he ever? He sings the title cut, Pile Driver, and he really cuts it loose. Buckwheat does. No, Coco
1: does.
3: The only counter to my objection, I think, would be several years before this on Saturday Night Live. Eddie Murphy was playing a Buckwheat character on the show, kind of brought it back into prominence. One of my favorite skits ever, Buckwheat Assassinated, where Eddie Murphy not only played Buckwheat, but the guy who assassinated him as well. It's it's one of the greatest sketches ever. But Coco, it almost feels like he's going to get a big push because he's the main singer on the title track, Pile Driver, a push through singing And I'm surprised that it didn't go further with him, and I think it has everything to do with his size. I mean, you're talking a guy who's under 6 feet, who weighs less than 230 pounds. And think about it, Coco's not even in Survivor Series in November. Kind of an odd thing with that. So for much of the middle of 87, Coco is beating all the guys you would expect him to beat. You know, just jobber guys, jobber to the stars, that sort of thing. But if he's facing Butch Reed, like at WrestleMania three, he's going to lose. So there's really not much of a way for him to get traction to move up the card. But that being said, Coco is one of the all-time great opening match guys. Come out, play his music, he gets everybody fired up. That sort of deal. But right now, apparently, he's going to have a little bit of a house show program with Danny Davis, who is something of a charisma vacuum and uh, probably did nothing for any opponent that he ever had after that whole Wrestlemania 3 thing where he won and then basically people just stopped caring about him
1: people beware of that bird he brings down to the ring if Danny Davis was still refereeing he plucked the feathers right out of that
0: bird sent him down to Camel Sanders and give everybody indigestion <laughs>
3: and therein lies a catch twenty two for Coco. In his match is so short that the inset promo of his rival is basically going on while he hits his finisher, wins the match. And why is the match so short? Because it has to be in order to fit in all the pile driver promos on which he sang the, the title track. So I don't know. There's there's a lot going on here with with Coco. But, it, yeah, it's never good when the inset promo was still going on and you're hitting your finish. But what's interesting about this match, and I don't think I've ever seen this before, where he put Frankie on Chris Curtis like it was Jake with Damien after hitting the DDT. It was very strange. Like, he's flapping his wings like, what the hell? Like they don't think of birds as like a- attack animals. Well, unless they're crows, but that's a completely different thing. You know, when you call a group of something a murder, you can tell it's an aggressive animal.
4: He's busy. We keep him busy. We have a lot of ambitions. We have a lot of goals set for the new dream team. And, you know, we feel that everybody has to do their job, and Johnny V's job sometimes is to run around chasing promoters for those big contracts.
3: Picture it. I sound like Sophia Petrello from Golden Girls. Picture it. The World Wrestling Federation, 1987. You're Greg Valentine... You've, you're a former Intercontinental Champion. You're a former Tag Team Champion with, with Beefcake. You're a U.S. Champion in the NWA. You, you have uh, so many accolades through the years. And right now, at this stage of your career, that you could argue maybe the tail end of his prime. I mean, yeah, he would wrestle for you know several more years, but th- he, this is maybe like the end of his prime. And he is wasting away listening to Dino Bravo give promos? He's with the fourth or fifth best manager, depending on where you'd rank Fuji. I'd, I would rank Johnny V below Fuji at this point. I mean, that's why Johnny V's out the door after the Survivor Series. It was just no more use for him. And Valentine's just kind of standing there. I mean, well, there's nothing for him to do. No wonder why he threatened to leave at this point in time. And, okay, he gets kind of a re- revised push. And yeah, he does beat Steamboat when he gets to WrestleMania 4 in that first round, which they kind of had to do. I mean, Steamboat was leaving right afterwards. You can't put him into the second round and have a face-versus-face match. Much as we all would have loved to have seen a Steamboat Savage, the redux at WrestleMania 4, where Savage goes over as a face and there's a sign of respect and all that sort of stuff, you just couldn't do it. So Valentine... Goes over, he goes to the second round, has one of the better matches on WrestleMania 4. But that that's months away. He's toiling away. So maybe when I'm sitting at my desk and I'm wondering, what am I doing in my own job? If I'm frustrated, if you're frustrated in your job, whether you're in an office now or you're in your home office, just think about Greg Valentine in 1987. And just remember that he had to stand behind Dino Bravo and listen to Dino Bravo give promos the way he is right now it's a very sad situation for the hammer no wonder why he was smoking joints i I took that down off my header for my twitter profile i decided to replace it with that uh, picture of bobby eaton having dinner with (laughs) lord stephen regal one of the great blue blue bloods vignettes very easy for me to say but yes the new dream team Thank God this is going to be ending in a couple of months. Just, just, for, I'm looking out for Greg Valentine here. He's the one that I care about. All right, I understand that the
2: new Dream Team is a little upset with uh, some of the matches that you've been signed for, like Paul Roman, Jimmy Powers, a great young team, the Shadows, teams like that. What do you want? You want the champions right out of the shoot? You've got to earn that.
4: Well, we feel we already heard that. You know, we don't have anything against any tag team combination in the World Wrestling Federation. The fact that they're here proves something. But we've been through all those teams. We don't have to go through the, those teams again. We want championship material. We want the champions themselves, the Hart Foundation. Let me tell you something. With all the respect, where respect is due, we do have a lot of feelings about the Hart Foundation. But our job is to become the number one team in the World Wrestling Federation, and the only way you're going to do that is by beating the champion and taking the belt home where they belong, the new Dream Team.
3: Now, while the Hart Foundation did face other heel teams on occasion, you didn't, I didn't necessarily see a lot of these interviews where a heel team is calling out another heel team. That, that kind of thing that just not did not occur very frequently. The reason why is, like, let's say... If you're a person who maybe you know does some questionable things like you're a heel in reality, I guess, and you, let's say you mess with the mafia, let's say in a cigarette trade, and you're kind of infringing on their turf, and you're kind of challenging them. That's a heel versus heel challenge, but the problem is you know, there's a very good chance that you might get whacked.
4: Well, me and Gene, I think the main thing we need... To teach all those Brujo brothers, the Killer Bees, and all those great tag teams you're talking about. The Hart Foundation, the British Bulldogs. What we really need to do is teach them all some respect. This is the new dream team. The old dream team is gone. We were the world champions, but now I've got a man right here that's twice the man that Brutus the Barber Beefcake ever thought of being. This man right here, Dino Bravo, along with myself, and you ask where Johnny V is, he is not on vacation. He is out there getting us world championship matches with a heart foundation, getting us top contending matches. Because we are the new dream team, and we're going to go into that squared circle, the combat zone, a lot of people like to call it, and we are going to prove ourselves, and we are going to teach some people a wrestling lesson. We're not going to go around and cut anybody's hair. We're going to go around and stretch a few ligaments if we have to, maybe tear a few biceps out, or maybe slip that figure four on some of those spindly legs out there. But the new dream team... The master of the figure four! That's right, the new dream team! Once, a championship match, and we're going to get it.
3: Valentine just looks kind of broken here. And I don't mean in, like, the cutesy, hearty sort of way. I mean, he looks like a guy who's questioning his life decisions. Like I said, he's standing behind Dino Bravo, and, and, and that's certainly one of them. But my advice to him at this point is, hey, you have an existing relationship with Jimmy Hart. He's had a lot of success this year. He's got the tag team champions. He's got the Intercontinental champion maybe you should hook up with him again and he'll get your career back on track. That would have been my advice to Valentine. And then, eventually, he does do that after Survivor Series where he kind of gets that renewed mini-push of sorts. So then they go into next week's show, what's going to be on Superstars of Wrestling next week. Strike Force will make their in-ring debut under that name. Mr. Wonderful Paul Lindorf with Oliver Humperdink as well. I mean, boy, the times... They are changing here in the World Wrestling Federation. A lot of things are going on. You better start swimming or you'll sink like Tom Stone. Or, you know, you'll get injured like Ken Patera or what have you. And that'll do it for WWF Superstars of Wrestling for August twenty second, 1987. here's hoping i remember how i do the plugs at the end of this show i'm gonna start out with one of my own this past monday which dropped when i was in las vegas the place to be podcast me jt and scott were talking the saturday night's main event from november of 1992 so i guess that's kind of where i depart the stage for that podcast because i only did the saturday night main events across time and uh They'll be moving on to something else in the timeline eventually. I, I I have specifically asked to not do the 2006 to 2008. Actually, if if they ever did those, I should. Just just because, even though I've ha- never had any desire to watch any of them. So, in, in the podcast that I usually plug, on the Our Vantage Point podcast, this week it was Joe Morata's birthday. I th- I know he's significantly younger than me. I'm going to say thirty. 30- six maybe I, I i don't know but now they're way ahead of me in the episode count it's like I, I closed to within six but now now they're like now they're like 16 ahead of me it's like 236 and they've been doing a series on the best celebrities in wrestling which of course is bob Eucher, bar none so there <laughs> there i i wrapped it up in a neat little package also having a birthday this week is my good pal Steve Bennett of the Sportscasters. He had Vic Carucci of SiriusXM talking NFL and Andrew Marshan talking his bread and butter sports media. Bread and butter? Well, what? 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 24-inch podcast. He and Dave Rowlands talking SummerSlam 88 in their latest edition. It was Steve's birthday the other day. And I know he's younger than me also, but um i'm gonna say i'm trying to remember i think it's 39 or 40 I, I i cannot i cannot maybe maybe it's 40 wait it's 2021 you're an accountant you you can't figure it out anyway it was keithy's birthday the last day i was in las vegas i mean well when the hell did every everybody is born in late august what the hell is going on here by the way you are 20. 20- Something years old. It's time to get over birthdays. And I've had some weird birthdays over the years. My 25th birthday, which actually was in Las Vegas, I asked my then-girlfriend to take me to the batting cage where she couldn't find it, and we drove around lost for about an hour. And then I I fell asleep in the car, and then, you know, we got there, and she she had absolutely no interest in it. By the way, we broke up three days later, so... (laughs) It's just one of those things. And I would be remiss... If I fail to mention, the Bottom Line Wrestling Podcast, as they are at the end of the line, celebrating the career of Stone Cold Steve Austin, WrestleMania 19, his match with The Rock, and all the weirdness that went into that one. And I will state for the record once again, I have never once in my life watched WrestleMania 19 from start to finish, and I kind of don't really have any desire to do so, in part because I don't like the look of, their, of WWE shows when they do it in a baseball stadium. I didn't particularly care for the 2020 Royal Rumble in the Houston, I almost said Astrodome, but that would have aged me terribly. It was it Minute Maid Park. And I liked it when it was Enron Field because that was particularly embarrassing. That, that should have been, if you wanted to punish the Astros for the whole quote-unquote cheating thing, I, I would have just make them call the park Enron Field, like, sorry, Minute Maid. We'll give you restitution for this. You probably don't want your name on it for a year anyway, but I, I really don't have a problem with the Astros. I'm just kind of saying that. Now, I always forget this every year because the show comes out on Thursday. The NFL season starts a week from today as this show drops. My, one of my best ideas ever Now, you might say, oh, no, you took the NFL wins pool idea from Sporty Simmons over at the Ringer. Well, no, not exactly, because theirs is, oh, 10 people, and you pick three teams, and it's this weird snake draft. No, mine is you group the teams in the NFL into three three sets, the 10 best teams, and then the next 11 best teams, and then the bottom 11 teams, and you get five people. And you pick two teams from each group. So there's some strategy involved where, with the groupings that I've put together, let's say you think the New York Giants are going to go 10-7. and 7. I mean, I think you're certifiable if, if that's the case. But because they would be in the bottom group, and not many teams are going to have a chance at winning 10 games in that bottom group, they are an outlier. But usually the way these drafts play out, it's usually like Kansas City will go first because you want to take that sure thing and with a 17 game season it's going to be a little weird I think this year but I am going to want I'm kind of recommitting myself a little bit to the NFL even though I'm very disappointed in Cam Newton being cut by the Patriots I understand why they did it I think but I liked Cam. He made me feel like a fanboy again. He made me feel like a little kid, and I, I, I like that one, especially since I have to watch the freaking Baltimore Orioles. Oh, wait. Sorry. I promised to put that at the end of the podcast. I don't think I'm going to do it this week because my level of outrage really doesn't – I haven't been truly outraged about the O's since Sunday, so I'm I'm not quite in the right frame of mind for that. I'm looking to get this podcast back on more of a weekly track, mainly because I think it is healthy for me to have this outlet on a weekly basis. But also, yeah, I I was always afraid, and I I don't mean to turn this into a therapy session. I was afraid for many years that if I just stopped doing the podcast, that, that it would be forgotten. Now, granted, I've been doing the GFA Lives on the weekends. So it's like, yeah, Winston, you've you've still been podcasting all along. And I have Keithy to thank for that, profusely thank him for that. But there are other people who have helped me during this difficult, you know, personal time for me. And they know who they are. And uh, I I threw in the Mad Men drop for for one of them uh, a little bit ago. So just to... uh, (laughs) <laughs> yeah, upon request. So anyway, thank you all so much for listening. And please leave a five-star review for Greetings Valentine GFA live on Apple Podcast because it provides what's known as social proof that you're listening to and enjoying this podcast. Again, I'm on Twitter at GFAlentown Pod, and send me an email at Greetings Valentine at gmail.com. And tune in next time for another exciting episode. G. Oh, wait. Oh, wow. I really screwed that up, didn't I? See, I thought I was doing the other show, but the di- the way it's different is I wear the headset for that show, and I just have regular, like, earbuds in for this, and I'm talking into a microphone, so I shouldn't have screwed that up. So let me try that again. Tune in next time for another exciting episode. Greetings from town. No no no.
1: Talking about no poverty
2: or no Billy Joel or no Lou Rawls, we talking about jive soul, bro.